This morning, we continue our study in Mark, Mark chapter 10. Uh, Last week, Elliot shared with us Jesus' teachings uh, to the disciples, and he ended with the charge to kill sin by whatever means necessary, to root out and destroy that which causes us harm. This morning, Jesus continues teaching, and we are now taught this morning about, maybe the the headline of your passage says, teaching about divorce. Um, I want us to see these next 12 verses as teaching about divorce in light of marriage. Uh, We may see this section as maybe something uncomfortable, maybe something we don't want to dive into, maybe something we've already dived into, all in between. Um, But this morning, my goal, and, and I hope our focus is to just find the joy in this section. Yes, the joy in the section teaching about divorce. So this morning, focus on the gift that God has given us and rejoice for his goodness to us here. Verse 1, And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, He taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, She commits adultery. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for your word opened right now. I pray just for a steadfastness to your word, that we would cling to you at this moment, um, that we would understand the truths that Jesus is sharing uh, with these Pharisees. I pray that it would have impact on our lives and in our hearts. We entrust this word and this service to you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1. Um, again, we see Jesus in the midst of a crowd teaching. Uh, by now, you can tell this is such common practice. This is just what he does on a day-to-day basis that we see the writers say it was his custom. His custom was he taught them. This is just what he was characterized as. This is who Jesus was. He was a teacher. He was one who imparted counsel and wisdom. This is Jesus. One who illuminates. One who shares. One who gives good news. This is how the writer here in Mark characterized Jesus. It was his custom to teach. Quick side note. What is your custom? The characteristic, the the custom of Christ was to teach. 
That's what the people around would see. That's what individuals see. That's what the writer here displays. This is his custom. What is your custom? If someone came alongside you and and saw your life and witnessed what you did, would you be excited about what they came back to you and said? Would you be disappointed about what they thought of you? What do you think your characteristic, your custom would be to those around you in the world? Just something I wanted and to wonder about and wanted you to wonder about this morning as well. Would it mirror who Christ is or who the Father is or would it mirror more what society is? Just something to ponder this morning as we see Jesus' custom was teaching. Going on in verse 2, the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? This is how the Pharisees came up to Jesus. And before we even get to the question itself, let us address the hard attitude of the Pharisees. Are the Pharisees coming up to Jesus with a genuine question to ask him? Are they coming up to Jesus desirous to be taught, wanting to understand, wanting a genuine response to their question? Are they saying, Lord, we're very curious. We want to know about divorce. We know that you have wise counsel. We come before you and we ask that you impart your wisdom to us. Is that the heart attitude of these Pharisees coming forward? Any one of us here would see, no, they're coming forth with ill will and to see Jesus stumble or fail to answer. It says in the beginning that the Pharisees came in order to test him. This was a test that they had brought forward. This wasn't genuine question or curiosity. This was to test them. And so can you remember what was told to us a few chapters back in Mark 6? Because this is the test that they're bringing forward to Jesus. Back in Mark 6, we see Herod had openly sinned to the nation and took another man's wife for his own. Not just another man's wife, but his brother's wife for his own. John the Baptist came forward rebuking the king for failing to uphold the law of divorce and for just encompassing himself in incestual behavior. And so John was thrown into prison Herodias was angry and and upset about what John had said. Herod was still at this time fearful of John, for he was a man of God. And so a plan was devised, and the daughter dances in front of Herod, and then Herod caves and gives in and said, you'll have whatever you would desire if you would ask it. She goes back to Herodias, and Herodias tells her, I'd like John the Baptist's head on a platter. And we know the rest, and John is executed. But what's the point of of all that is to say, this is what the Pharisees are testing Jesus with. Just a few chapters back, we, we learned that there was a stance taken by John on divorce. There was a stance taken by John of just taking another man's wife. So is Jesus going to side with John and say, yes, I stand against the king, the king is in sin, Or will he say, no, there is a reason for divorce. There is this one part to do and then go against John. So now that question and a test is brought before them and the Pharisees are probably sitting there pretty 
pretty happy with himself, saying we got him. This whole time, we finally got him. This is the question that will get him. This is the question that will bring him down. This is the question that won't make him look so smart. He has to, to share what divorce is. He has to share and answer this question. And so this is the heart nature of these Pharisees, to trick Jesus. I want to stop here for a second and warn you this morning about something you probably already know about. But there are many around us who will ask similar questions of you. They can ask questions such as, you know, trying to stump you or trying to make your faith low. They'll ask questions of, well, if your God is so good, then why would he dot, dot, dot? Do you really think God would say blank? You don't really believe that God is fill in the blank. You get these questions brought forth to you. You get these questions coming alongside you to say, we're going to stump him. We're going to bring him low. We're going to show him that this God who he thinks is so great, so powerful, so awesome, that there's holes in his argument. I'm going to pop every single one. I've gone to ask these questions numerous times. These questions are drawn up in order to stump you, to make you have disbelief. Or maybe they are just out of curiosity. Maybe they are just out of a sense of we want to know. We want to know what this God is. We want to know who he is. We want to know why he thinks this way, why he says this, why he does this. And so these questions are drawn up. The question for you is, do you have the ability to answer them? Someone were to come up to you and ask you one of these questions, like the Pharisees would to Jesus, can you stand there confidently and say, yes, I can answer you, I can defend? You were trying to bring God low, but I know his word, I know what he says, I know his character, I know his attributes, I know the way in which he works. And so therefore, yes, here is a response. Can you do that? Do you feel equipped enough? If you don't find yourself equipped enough or you sit there and you say, I don't know if I can answer this question or this question or this question or this question, or I'd be quite scared or I'd be quite nervous. I would plead with you to get in the word more. I'm not saying this just to bring a hammer down on you to say, get in the word more. But I am saying it on on, on the fact of there are those who desire to put your faith to shame. There are those who want to see your faith crumble and your argument for God brought low. Those who outwardly despise God and thus despise anyone who's associated with his name. It's not you specifically, Joe. It's not you specifically, Terry. It's not you specifically, Carl. But you associate with the name of Christ and so therefore you are one of them. So can you defend? Can you be on guard for this? 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts, honor the Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. We're called to defend our hope and faith. This isn't just a thing that I'm asking you to do this morning. It's a thing that we're called to do. We're called to defend. And we're called to defend for what reason? 
because people will come up and we will need to defend. This isn't just that if someone comes up, then defend. Someone will come up. Someone will ask you questions. Someone will try to profane the name of Christ. Can you defend? And again, if you do not, if you don't feel like you have a good defense, why don't you? I would ask you, if someone came up to you and spilled lies about your favorite book, about your favorite TV show, about your favorite movies, if someone came up to you and, and said, this is, you know, your hobby is stupid, your work job is, is X, Y, and Z, and you sit there, could you defend those things? Could you readily defend your favorite book, your favorite hobby, your job title? And most of us would say, yeah, I can have a, I think of myself, I can have a pretty thorough and passionate defense of that individual thing. And yet we sit and we say, I don't think I can have a ready defense for someone to come up to me and ask questions about who God is. I would ask you why. Why can you have a ready defense for this, but not for God? If it's convicting to you this morning, good, I hope it is. It was for me as I was writing it. I began to think of of individual things of, could I defend this? Could I come alongside in this? If someone asked this question, what would I say? I should know my God better than I know my favorite hobby. I should know his word better than I know my favorite book. This is our God, our Father, our Creator. How much of an importance is He to you? And yet, how little do we know of Him and His Word which He has given to us? How often do we treat Him low? I'll tell you, there's those who despise God, who know more about the Word than we do. There are those who will come alongside and bring forth scripture and we stand there being like, that was my defense with scripture. And it still should be your defense of scripture. But you say, I don't know what to do with this text because I've never read it. I've never been entrenched in it. I never desired to learn it. I pray that this would not be the case for us. I I urge you to know him better. Let us all know God better and have a ready defense for our Father from those who despise him. 2 Timothy 2.15 says this, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. There's only one way to rightly handle the word of truth. You have to know the word of truth. I'm only belaboring this point because it's important. I don't want to just be another guy up here saying, be in your word, be in your word, be in your word, but be in your word. It's what we're called to do. It's what we're commanded to do. God has given us all that we need in this word and in prayer and in a body. And yet we know little of the word. Let us all rightly handle the word of truth.
So, the Pharisees bring forth this question to Jesus. And what is Jesus' response? He answered them, What did Moses command you? How does Jesus respond to the Pharisees' question? Does he respond with his own thinking? Does he respond with the world's thinking? Does he respond with anything else besides Scripture? No, he says, What has already been shared to you by Moses through God? This is why it's important to understand the Scriptures. Jesus' response is based off the Scriptures. Jesus' defense is based off of what has already been said in Deuteronomy. And the Pharisees respond with what has already been shared in Deuteronomy, and they say, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Pharisees saw this as a ready and perfect response to Jesus' answer, or to Jesus' question. Moses in Deuteronomy shared that if a husband has found some indecency in her, that being his wife, then he writes her certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. The Pharisees thought, see, here's the teaching of divorce. Moses shared it with us back in Deuteronomy. We have the word here to show you. What is going to be your response to what Moses taught? What is going to be your response to what Moses has shared? But we see in verse 5, the Pharisees who gave a ready response and who knew the word, Jesus responds with, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. The Pharisees had been viewing this and most likely teaching this as common practice. We find those things in, in our lives as well that become tradition that aren't necessarily God's word or God's intention. We put intention to who God is. And therefore, we bring in traditions, we bring in things, and we treat them as high as what God deems as good. You can imagine this is what the Pharisees were doing. Divorce is just a part that came along with marriage. You had marriage, and then you were given this other commandment that here's divorce, it's permissible. And they were so wrapped up in their traditions that they thought divorce was a good thing in God's eyes. That's why the response was so ready. Here's divorce. Where in fact Moses actually suffered in writing that commandment, but did it for the hardness of their hearts. That's what the Pharisees missed. These men were so hard-hearted that after marrying their wives, the first thing they found indecent, basically anything they thought, I don't like, I don't care for, it's unwanted, they would cast off, ride off, throw away, stone, kill, leave for barren their wives. These men were wicked, wicked men. This is what they thought of marriage. And so due to these evil men, this law was written to show them that this was a choice of the man to divorce the wife. This was not on the wife. This was not the wife's choosing. This was not the wife's own sin. This was the man saying, here you go. This is your certificate of divorce. I am writing my reason why I'm divorcing you. So therefore, you can go off and remarry. 
Therefore, you can go off and you don't have to be barren. You don't have to be an outcast. I am showing you that I divorced you out of my own will because I wanted to. And this was to prevent man from sinning anymore. It was enough that they chose to break the covenant of marriage. But they would break the covenant of marriage and then stone their wives and then cast out their wives and then cause more sin to happen. So instead of doing that, here's a certificate of divorce. Go off. The Pharisees looked back at this commandment of Moses and twisted it to be something that was good, twisted it to be something that was right, twisted it to be something that was commonplace. This was not commonplace. This was the last resort for wicked men. They forgot what God had deemed as right for marriage. So Jesus reminds them, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female, Therefore, man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. I told you we were going to get to beautiful and and joyous stuff. Here we are. We had to get through all the muck to get here, but here we are in the joyous stuff. This is what Jesus is sharing about marriage. Jesus' teaching on divorce is to remind them what marriage truly is. And so this is what God saw as right and perfect in a marriage. Turn with me back to Genesis 2, what we read this morning. I'm not going to read the whole thing over again, but we're going to read the last little bit here. Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25. So last seven verses there. This is after the Lord had created heavens and earth. This is after the Lord had, had done all that he would, would like to do. And then he comes to creation of man and he creates man. And then 18 comes and then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. It's not good that the man should be alone. And so I'll make him a helper fit for him. And now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, this was his name. The man gave name to all the livestock and to all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So so far we see a dilemma here. There's no helper. There's nothing in the beasts or the livestock That is a helper for Adam. So then we see in 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And then look at the man's response. Look at Adam's response. The man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then we get 24 and 25. Therefore, because of this, because of what was done, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. 
And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. First off, God created male and female. This was God's divine design for marriage. This is what he chose as correct and right and good. Male and female. One male, one female. This is God's design. And Adam, who had been looking, who had been searching for this helper, because God saw that Adam needed a helper, it was not good for man to be alone. God, in his mercy, found him a helper, the one who completed him. The animals were not suitable for Adam. And so God, in his power, designed from the man out of a rib a woman and presented her to Adam. And this is the joy that we should have. Adam in joy, when he finds his helper, when all the beasts and all the living creatures come alongside and they're all here and he can't find anyone who's compatible with, he has this one formed from within. And Adam finally in joy says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. At last, here's the one who completes me. Here is my helper. Here is the one whom is mine, and I am hers. It's a beautiful sight. This first meeting of man and woman, and there's joy. And God, due to the goodness of his creation, created the woman out of man and said, And man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Though two individuals, they shall ever forever be unified as one. There's an intimacy and a closeness that is not found with any other individual in the world. You have brothers, you have sisters, you have parents, you have loved ones, you have friends, you have a dog as a companion. There is not anyone on this world whom you share this closeness or love with, like your spouse. It is unlike anything else. For you're so different. You're completely different people, and yet perfect compliments for one another. It is almost as God interweaves your souls together. And we should love one another. We should rejoice in one another. But often we don't, or often we don't know how, and so how do we do this? How do we keep this in our minds when we let discontentment, when we let discomfort enter in, unrest, and we say, I'd rather be anywhere else than with my wife right now. I'd rather be anywhere else than with my husband right now. He's annoying me. I'm I'm discontent. I don't want to be here. I just want to go anywhere else. Well, we have a picture of Scripture of what this looks like and a model to imitate. So turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, as we reflect on how to rejoice and find joy and how to be married. 
Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. Paul is sharing and he says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, Let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Men, we are called to love our wives. And not just love our wives, but love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And you may say, that's a mighty task. That's too great a task. I don't know how I can accomplish that. And in some respect, you would be correct because you will never be as sacrificial as Christ was as he came on the cross and bore our wrath. However, you can, by the help of the Spirit, be sacrificial and selfless for your wife. We are given what love is supposed to look like in 1 Corinthians 13. It says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Men, how many of those things are you to your wife? Do you ever envy or boast? Are you ever arrogant or rude? Do you ever insist on your own way? Are you irritable? Are you resentful? Do you, do you rejoice in wrongdoing? How many of those things do you find present in your own life? We are called to love our wives. We've heard now three times This statement said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Do you think it's important? We're to hold fast to one another. Men are supposed to hold fast to their wives. We, as husbands, doing all for their benefit, understanding that we, as husbands, should love our wives as our own bodies. We go out and we nourish our body, whether that be by by fitness or by reading the word or by prayer or by whatever the case may be, and then we neglect our wives. 
We say, I'm going to lift myself up. I'm going to make myself upright. And then my wife's on her own. In the same way we take care of our body, we feed our souls, we wash ourselves, we bask in prayer, should be the same thing that we have with our wives. Yet very often we're selfish in our ways. We want to do what we want to do in our time, in our will, on our schedule. Just give me this sliver. Just give me this time. I want to be by myself. I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to do... We're selfish. We're selfish very often. We are now one, united forever. We should be treating our wives with the utmost care, with the utmost nourishment, cherishing them, loving them, upholding them, lifting them up, building them, strengthening them, washing them. There's so much we can do. And it's our duty because we love them. Let us love our wives. Wives, respect your husbands. Do not undermine, do not fight for control, do not put your husband low. Come alongside him, aid him, help him where he's weak. It's hard. It's tough to do. We make it very difficult for you to do. We are stubborn. We are hard-headed. We want to do our own thing. Help us. Come alongside us. Respect us. Let your husband lead as hard as it may be. For here's the truth. Understand, ultimately, it's not who, him who you're putting your hope and your faith in. It is God who you're putting your hope and your faith in. And you're trusting that God will lead your husband in the way that you should go. You're trusting that God will work in his heart to fit the ways in which he needs to go and not do his own thing. And if you see him doing his own thing, love him, respect him, come alongside him, aid him. But trust that God is leading God is in control. And a mirror that is shown for us with marriage is that we've been given Christ as our head, the body, shifting gears now a little bit. We, the body of Christ, are his bride. Marriage is a a merciful thing by God. The fact that we get to, to come alongside one another and walk through life together, it's merciful by God to do such. And then on top of that, we get a picture of love, of God's love for his people in marriage. Look through the beauty of God's steadfast love for his people. Ever from the first covenant made with Adam and God's plan for redemption from the people, then you go out and you see the, God's people do whatever they want to do in their own eyes, and then God is waiting and patient and merciful to them, and then they cry out to God, and here he is to come alongside. Here he is to help them. Then you see again and again God's mercy guiding them, rescuing them. You see God sending his son into the world so that that first covenant with Adam may be complete. Rescue his people out of this bondage to sin. 
redeeming his people, giving us his spirit to teach us and to guide us in the ways and the path of God, ultimately leading us to what we see in Revelation 21. Turn with me very quickly. This is the last place we're going to go this morning, Revelation 21. Revelation 21, as is being described to us, the new heaven and the new earth. We are shown in here, verses 1 to 7. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as what? As a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is who our God is is we are the bride of Christ and we can look through scripture and see how Christ has loved his bride he paid the ultimate price for us his spirit was imparted to us we are taught we are grown we are molded we're matured we're washed with the word we come before him in prayer we share with him our innermost being this is who Christ is and so the pharisees asked the question of Jesus is it lawful for man to divorce his wife and they said this to stump Jesus and instead of playing into that, Jesus shared with them what marriage is and how it is good. They want to stump him. They want to bring him low, but instead he shares with them what they're missing. How it is a covenant, a bond, not to be broken or separated by man, for God has joined them together. And if one understands what it means this forming of marriage, this one who are, these two who are brought together, and the goodness that God has intended for marriage. If one is to understand that, what man would seek divorce? The hard part is we don't understand that. We don't know that. We don't hold fast to that. We don't think of it as a covenant that cannot be broken. We don't think of it as something that we should cherish our wives and we should respect our husbands. We think of it as there's better stuff out there. I don't like this one thing about my wife. I don't like this one thing about my husband. So therefore, I don't care anymore to be with them. If you understand why God made marriage, if you understand what God intended for marriage, I would be hard-pressed to see anyone 
who is a believer, who has a spirit, desire for divorce. And so God made marriage. He, he made it to be good. And the only reasons that we find ourselves falling into this trap of wanting divorce, looking other places, is when our gaze is away from the beauty that God has created in this union. Then man's wickedness creeps in. And we try to destroy and manipulate and turn what God has made for good. Look at how marriage is being manipulated in our society today. There is not a care for that original unity of one man and one woman. And so therefore you see marriage take place all over the place that is different, is altogether abhorring to who God is and his nature. And what do you see of the divorce rates? They're as high as can be. Because no one values marriage in the first place. No one values what God had created in the first place. So therefore, why not get divorced? It's just a certificate we write our names on that we go to City Hall and we, and we print one out and then we're married. It doesn't change anything. We just now can wear a, a wedding band and say we're married. It's important for us to understand God's plan and goodness for marriage. And so to end up verses 10 to 11, we see, and in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. It is always cool to see the disciples in one sense be able to come alongside Jesus and ask more questions and get more insight. But then we also get to see responses from Jesus, making it plain for us. For the disciples were still curious and probably hadn't heard this teaching before, so were wondering what it was. And then Jesus basically puts it plainly for them by saying, if one divorces their spouse, and we know in Matthew uh, it says, except on the grounds of adultery, then they are in their own right committing adultery. So if there's any other reason you are wanting a divorce besides adultery, then you are committing adultery yourself. What is he saying to them? Basically, you are in sin. This is not something that we take lightly. This is not something that God chooses to be lightly. You are in sin if you divorce your wife. You are in sin if you divorce your husband. This is how great a matter this is that Jesus puts it in this weighty terms. God had made marriage for good. He made it for our benefit. And if you break this covenant, if we break this covenant, you are in sin. Jesus doesn't mince words. It's a matter of utmost importance. I pray for us that we would take marriage seriously that we would stop being so selfish, that we as men would love our wives, that wives would respect their husbands, not just because it's a feeling that we want to do, not just because it's what we're told to do, but because we see what God has given us as good, as right. It is hard. It's difficult. I don't think that marriage is going to be this thing where all of a sudden it's just, and you're good. 
And now you walk in unison the whole time. But that's the joy. That's the joy as believers. We have Christ. We have an ability to together, on our knees, come before the throne of God and ask for assistance. Ask for guidance. Ask for love for one another. Ask that we would stop being so selfish. And God is gracious enough to take those things away. God is gracious enough to help you in those ways. Marriage is a joy that has been given. I was convicted this week writing. As I look back in my own ways, and I see how I don't love my wife correctly. I see how I can be selfish. I see how I cannot put her first. I see how I can bring her low and not wash her. I see how I can put myself first. It was convicting writing. For especially as men, we have witnessed the joys of Christ dying on a cross, the love that God has for us. And God has shared, love your wives the same. And has given each one of us a specific love for our wives. And yet we ignore it. Yet we bring it low. Yet we toss it to the side. Husbands, love your wives. We should rejoice. We're one. And as we come to the table this morning, we can rejoice as well that we are one with God. All of us sitting here this morning are co-heirs of the kingdom of God. We see those go before us in death, and we don't grieve as others do. Why? Christ has died. He's paid the price. We can now run towards death. We can now run towards eternity, for we are his, and he is ours forevermore. Because of this gift that he has given us. We can rely on him as our leader, as our savior, as our counselor. He is mighty. He is good. I pray as we come before the table this morning that we would understand these things about Christ, that we would understand these things about our Father. And as we take the bread and we take the cup, we don't hold it lightly, understanding just what the price was that was paid on that cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are wonderful in your ways. I pray, Lord, that we would be joyous as we walk out of here. It was more convicting to me than it was joyous, Lord. And so I pray that we would thank you, that we would love you, that we would embrace you as our Father, understanding that you give us joy in things such as our spouse. 
Pray that we would love them with a love that we have for you. We are thankful to be called yours. I pray that we would sing loudly at this moment. Praising in Jesus' name, amen.